Hello and welcome to Back to Britpop. It's me, Chris. On this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Crispin Hunt of Long Pigs, a really fantastic guest. Crispin talks about the Long Pigs, his influences growing up, getting signed, and also we talk a lot about the work he's doing with fixed streaming at the moment. There's a, a big campaign online about artists not being paid correctly in terms of royalties uh, for streaming. It's a really jam-packed episode and an absolute pleasure to speak to Crispin, as I know he doesn't do many interviews, uh, so I was very lucky. So enjoy the episode. I'll be back afterwards to talk about uh, the usual bits and pieces. Welcome to the podcast, Crispin. How are you? I'm really well, thanks. Thanks for having me, Chris. I'm, I'm sort of delighted to be doing it. I don't. I rarely sort of stick my head above above the parapet of music, and and at the moment, well, no, I don't I stick my head above the parapet <laughs> a lot, but not and not to talk about music, to talk about its politics, really. Yeah, mostly. you've been incredibly busy recently, haven't you? I've been uh, following on Twitter all the all the fixed streaming things that you've been heavily involved in. Yeah, I, I mean, I it's been it's been it's a fantastic time and a kind of dreadful time for for musicians all in all because I think it's we're at, we're at a kind of you know at the edge of a brand new paradigm which should kind of detoxify the music industry from all of its all of its sort of historic inequities and um, and I think it has to really to go forward. Streaming um, should and could be such a a miracle for music but it's got to also be a miracle for the people who make the music as well as for the people who sell it and traditionally that's that's not happened in music so but now i think the arguments are there to make sure that it um, that it that it does I, I don't think you know i think traditionally the industry's done a fantastic job and in the 20th century you know big record labels did did three things fantastically. They distributed, they manufactured, and they marketed um, music brilliantly. But now, let's be honest, they just market music. So they they should they can't justify taking three quarters of the revenue anymore. You know, the, the other two quarters of the revenue has got to has got to go back to the people who 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 create the music in the first place. So how do you think that model went? so wrong and how you know is it just a case of the fact that as as the years progress people haven't really got to grips with how to manage this well no i think it started off in you know if you go back to the kind of history and the and the, the genesis of the music industry it it was a very weird environment and people were it was brand new and people were absolutely thrilled to have the opportunity to get onto the radio and to release records so um and as i say you know it was justifiable if the record company was saying was paying for the recording studio if the record company was paying for that you know they had manufacturing plants they had printing presses to print the sleeves they had distribution teams and warehouses full of records and huge infrastructure in order to get um you know in order to get records into record shops around the world but um none of that uh, infrastructure exists any longer and and that was what justified all of the you know the that 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 was a significant cost to the music industry but those costs just don't exist and so then now their profit margins are way through the roof much better than they've ever been before and um and really um there is no you know it you know that those savings should be passed on to the to the people who create the music because because it just it it needs to happen you know there you can't you can't say that 
you can't take a distributor's and a, and a manufacturer's cut when you're no longer distributing and manufacturing. Yeah, it's yeah. simple as that. Do you see a light at the end of the tunnel with everything that you're doing, or is it something that you think? Yeah, gonna... I think I think it will change. I think it's the first time. I think I think COVID in a in a you know has been devastating for absolutely everybody, but it's also given us all a, an opportunity to kind of step back and reassess. Um, uh, uh, you know, on a global scale, the kind of you know the the inequalities between profit and proportionality, and uh, and I think music's become the kind of under the microscope as a sort of um, you know that conversation is being played out in music in miniature, and that there is no better example. Just like um, with Black Lives Matter, there is no better example of an industry that's ruthlessly exploited black culture and given very little <laughs> very little of it back to um to black culture so um so i think we we are just we're just there and i think the whole world is is using covid as an opportunity to reassess where we were before and reassess where capitalism works and where capitalism doesn't work but music is a perfect example of of you know the theory of trickle down but um the proof that you know the stream trickles up not down and yeah. it needs to start to trickle down so so i do think i think it's you know the the conversation's so wide now it's gone global it's the uh, people in australia are speaking about it the americans are speaking about it um i don't think it's possible to put something like that back in the bottle anymore and just like black lives matter if if nothing is done to significantly and meaningfully um, affect the change that needs to happen across across diversity, then that's as good as a tacit admittance that there is uh, an endemic racist, racism or, or endemic in, you know injustice going on in the world. And and once once you've named that, once you've put it on the table you can't brush it aside and i think in music it's it's the same way so i do think there will be movement i do think uh, i think now is the the time where we're at a kind of watershed and um, the music industry is going to go into a um a, a brand new paradigm where where it's much more beneficial to the people who who create the stuff that drives all the value yeah so it's years and years ago when you first you know started writing music and getting into bands and stuff it was wouldn't have been something that would have been the least thing on your mind is you know your profits how you're going to make money from the you know your passion uh and everything else it's kind of like the dream is just to be played on the radio the dream is to be you know get a gig and to play live and, and get a fan base you never think about the future absolutely you don't you sort of assume that uh you 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 know, I would have sold my, you know, I look back and and people say, well, well, you signed the record deal in the first place. But to be honest, it was a, you know, I was a 19 year old kid when I find my, signed my first record deal. And and I probably would have sold my grandmother into slavery in order to be on top of the pops. You know, it was kind of that's that's the, the kind of lack of um, of of symmetry in those relationships. And uh uh, you know, I'm joking about selling my grandmother into slavery, obviously, but I, but um, but but that was everyone's dream. And there, but there was also a kind of, you know, there was a direct line between if you sold records, you would get paid, 
Um, but now that 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 direct line has has been eroded, and um, you know it created a kind of truce between capital and labor, if you know what I mean, because there was relative affluence. If you sold enough CDs, you you made quite a good living, even though you were only getting the crumbs off the table. But now that you're getting the crumbs off the table of a 0.0063 stream, we need to do something about it and it needs to it needs to change. So that's what that's what you know I've sort of I, I I'm I'm still doing an awful lot of creative stuff. I still write for an awful lot of people and produce an awful lot of records, but I know at the moment I'm sort of focusing my creative energy on on um being creative in a in a kind of political sphere and kind of correcting um some of the um wrongs in the music industry that just just can't stand anymore. Going back then right to the very beginning who were your musical influences or what kind of bands or artists got you into, you know, writing and, and you know, music making? Uh, if I'm really honest, it was it was actually musicals that got me into it right from the very beginning. I used to, as a very little kid, I used to be completely entranced by musicals. And I used to think it was really, really unfair that you couldn't just as a small child burst into song and an orchestra would would come and join in behind you, you know. I, that figured to me like it was a, a better version of the world than, um, you know. I'd see My Fair Lady and Oliver and things like that, and it just seemed like that was a much a world with music kind of incorporated into it. Seemed seemed like the way the world should be to me. And so, um, when I realised that there wasn't going to be an orchestra that joined into me bursting into song, I just to, to bursting into song myself <laughs> and then uh and then kind of got um i mean it's not cool to say that but i but i i did used to love that that narrative of music being uh you know a, a real part of real life and music is a massive part of real life it's uh you know that it's it's a greater communication form than you know all art kind of aspires to be music it's it's the one thing that is kind of completely in the ethers. It has no shape, no form. It makes no sense. Why should why should changing one note of three make or one note of four make you feel happy or sad? Mm. It has no reason to it. It seems to be totally kind of demonic. But but we don't demonize it. We celebrate it. Whereas everything else that exists in the ethers that we don't understand, like telekinesis and aliens and stuff and vampires we get we get scared of we demonize that god and the like but um but but not music we accept it just as as a kind of huge communion of of people and it's also the only time that that human beings behave we you know we stare in wonder at at swallows um, murmuring and moving together in in one group or fish moving together in one group and actually music and harmony with a with a choir or a symphony orchestra is the is the one time that that human beings do that other than football i suppose you know when you first pick, picked up a musical instrument and thought you could write your own sort of music and songs did that still come from that that musical place uh, or is you know that, that no no really really to be honest i got um you know i got i went i dug out i was quite young when i first got into music and it started with musicals and then i started digging out my parents record collection as you do and that was that was pretty standard fare it was elvis and the beatles and the stones and led zeppelin and and 
and so on and so forth. And so I learned all of those and became obsessed with all of those and then started getting into my my own um and I was quite young. I was still sort of getting Star Wars toys bought for me. And, um, you know, the, the Flying Lizards, I think, was my first single that anybody ever bought for me. And so um, so I, I just started, I really desperately wanted to learn learn an instrument. And I tried to learn the piano and hated it because it was sort of boring piano teachers and then I tried to learn the violin and, and that was just painful. Then I tried to learn the flute and that was fluty and um and then eventually i kind of picked up a guitar and just like anybody else um i couldn't i couldn't be bothered i wasn't good enough to learn how to play anybody else's song so i just used to kind of make the noise that i could on a guitar and and then make up my own songs to go along with it and that's really how i started writing songs how old do you think you were when you thought you you might want to do this for a living quite early i think kind of it struck me I was always kind of quite an imaginative child and I would go and play, you know, car war, you know, cowboys or Star Wars or, or, you know, army or whatever and have kind of imaginative play. But also it struck me quite early on that most of those things weren't likely to be, to be achievable. But, um, but then I remember seeing, you know, pop stars on TV and I thought, oh, that looks like a kind of fantasy existence. So, um, and that could potentially be achievable. So I think I was quite young. I think I was sort of, you know, nine, 10 when I started going, that's what I want to be. I, I think we'd say that the donkeys have, have stood the test of time in terms of, so from the era of the 90s, to rephrase it slightly, some of the bands have come and gone. And, you know, we look back at some of the time and, you know, the culture and some of the, you know, the subject matter of some of the songs. And Long Peaks have really stood the test of time in terms of the quality of the songs. And I, I guess, is that something you were consciously, you wanted to do as, as everything else around you was quite colourful and upbeat and buoyant? You, there's this underlining sadness to, to, especially the first Long Pigs record. Is that just, was that just you and what you wanted to do and sort of? Well, I, I'm gonna, I mean, it's very, it's very kind of you to say that. And it's something that, you know, I'm amazingly um, both shocked and proud of is that it still gets a lot of, um, you know, it, it, people are listening to it as much now as, as almost as much as they did then, which is, which is amazing. But, um, but I don't think we, you know, I don't, our records, the first record was very much just a band in a room. It wasn't, it didn't, you know, I was, I, I remember at the time sort of thinking, oh God, this doesn't sound like it's really modern production. It doesn't sound as good as everybody else's records. But actually I think that's done us a favour in that because it is just, you know, it's, it's just a band in a room and it was very much recorded live as, as a band in a room. So, um, so I think that kind of stands the test of time because just as, you know, guitars have been around with made the same noise for 500 years or drums have sort of evolved into the shape and size that a drum kit is because that was the perfect shape and size for it. So mm. actually it's kind of timeless. It becomes, it becomes timeless maybe, but I also think that, um, you know, I work with a lot of people now who I'm really, really thrilled when they say I you know I listen to your records and there's a few kind of new um and very brilliant bands that I'm privileged to you know they sort of sometimes cite Long Pigs as a as a reference um or as an inspiration and I think that's uh, alas that's probably in the same way that Long Pigs used to cite 
television who were you know tom verlaine and television who were an amazing band but who nobody had ever heard of but we yeah. thought was brilliant and it's and it's slightly cool to kind of cite something that nobody else knows so so i i hope that um you know long takes as as has become the the television for other people. Of course, I would have much preferred it if we'd been a household name and been, um, you know, hugely famous. But um, but I'm really, you know, I at the same time, I think in those days it was um, I, I was there was a paradox between being successful um, and selling out. You know, you used to the bands that I loved, kind of in, in you know, like the Stone Roses and the. Um, you know, and the Smiths and Echo and the Bunny Men and people like that were, um, you know, they were never at the top of the charts. They were Stone Rose's biggest hit when it went to number 13 or something. It was mm. it was kind of uncool to to actually have success. Mm. And then Oasis and Blur came along and, and got number one records and, and that became the norm. So it was, it was a funny thing. The roadmap for the long pins in the early days was quite turbulent as well, wasn't it? It wasn't, it wasn't easy for you, essentially, to get to where you kind of ended up. No, we had a we had a really difficult time. We got um, we got signed quite early on by Electra Records, which was very cool, and we thought this is great. And Electra just started up again in the UK, um, having been missing, and and we thought, oh great, this is the same label as The Doors um, was on. We thought that was really cool, and um, and we recorded an album um, that was brilliant with brilliant producer called gil norton who'd done the pixies and lots of other people and um was still a sort of major inspiration to me and um and we were sort of three weeks away from releasing the first record when um when electra folded you know electra which was part of wea which was warner's then sort of they decided that they would shut the uk for some kind of internal political reason they would shut the uk office and so so instead of being you know, had that record come out, we would have been right at the forefront of of Brexit, which which is where I felt we were. But um, but then we got kind of shelved for eighteen months, and it took us eighteen months to get a new deal and get out of that deal, and it was very frustrating. Um, which is probably why I, I'm trying to kind of change the the music industry now yeah. because it was it was a very harsh lesson in how how I shouldn't have signed that deal in the first place. <laughs> uh, um, but um, but we so then we came back in, but it was it was annoying because we were at the you know we were seen as kind of um, as part of a movement that had already existed rather than being right at the vanguard of it, which which we genuinely were, and it was frustrating to have to kind of um, you know be running with the pack rather than at the front of it. Mother Records came to the rescue, essentially, I guess, back here, a bit later on, 96, was it? Yeah, no, it was just before that. Oh. I think they signed us in, in 95, because we signed to Electra in 93 or something like that. So a long time ago. <laughs> um, yeah, Mother Records Mother Records were, were great, and they were, they were sort of, it was, you know, U2's label and... Um, and you two were very good to us. They had us to tour with them in in the states, and um, and that was an amazing experience because they, at that time they was on the kind of lemon pop tour, and they were the biggest band in the world, and they were having such fun. And they were um, it was the first time that you two had really got a sense of humour about themselves as well, which was um, you know I'm sure they'll forgive me for saying it was much needed but it was a, a you know an incredible experience playing 
good to an audience of of eighty thousand people was a, was an amazing thing. So um, so that was so that was good. And and Mother Records were were a, were a good label, but then unfortunately they closed down um, just after we released our second album, and um, and that it just felt like, if I'm honest, it felt like we'd had a really good run at it. It felt like um it was meant to be you know it was meant mm. to be and we couldn't quite face going through the um we were all a bit tattered by then having toured rather a lot and had a, had a very good time but um but um we were a bit bored of each other and um we thought it was probably best just to kind of let it go rather than spend another year and a half and a whole load of contractual shenanigans trying to get out of the mother records deal and signed by somebody else to do something else. So, mm. so we, we sort of, um, you know, I, I went into politics then I sort of stopped working in, um, in music and sort of decided to go and try and change the world and went and worked for, for, you know, as a researcher in the Labour Party at Westminster, which was interesting. I think we, we all, I think every musician thinks they can kind of change the world and um and so it, it for me it was a kind of natural progression if you couldn't change the world with music you um go and try and change the world via democracy the producing side of things then and, and write and writing when did that come about would you were you sort of uh joining production company and producing your own or other artists no i kind of i'd always been i'd always been writing songs and I, and I tried to kind of give it up when I went into when I went at the end of Long Pigs I thought right okay that's you know, I've had a fantastic time it's time to do something else and I went as I said and worked in in Westminster but I but um you know music doesn't leave you alone unfortunately you can't it's not something you can give up I think it chooses you rather than you choosing it and and so I would find myself sitting in the back of select committees, humming into a dictaphone and kind of coming up with with little tunes that I thought, oh, that's not bad. And then eventually some friends of mine said, look, this is silly. Why don't we um, just for a laugh write some songs for somebody else? And we um, and we did. And we sat down and we got a kind of there's a thing called the who's looking list that the publishers put out and with useful brief saying you know rihanna wants a global smash hit dance floor bang you know and we found a, a convenient looking brief and wrote a song um for someone who i'm not going to mention um who'd been in a kind of boy band and um we sent it off thinking nothing would ever happen to it it's a bit of a laugh and you know, a month later, it was number three in England, number one in Italy, and and number one in Germany, <laughs> and a kind of big hit. So, um, so then it was like a kind of um, I went, oh, this is this is really good fun, and it was a, it was a sort of a bit of a bit of an epiphany for me because I'd always been a complete purist as a um, in, in my own, you know, in the long pigs, I'd been I'd been very, as I said, I sort of shunned the idea of commerciality, but this was the first taste for me of something where where I realized if you can get kind of 10% of art to 10 million people it's better than getting 100% of art to 100,000 people yeah, yeah so so that was a and then I started writing uh, and I was still working in politics but I started writing with some other amazing artists like I wrote with um Newton Faulkner and I wrote with Natalie Imbruglia and a whole bunch of other people and um 
um, you know, I've worked with some, I've, I've been really lucky. I've worked with some amazing, amazing people like Florence and the Machine and Lana Del Rey and Ellie Goulding and, um, and numerous other, Luke Sittal Singh and, you know, new, numerous other amazing people. And, um, and I'd never really, I had to kind of play catch up on, on learning how to be a record producer. And, and I'm not that greater record producer i'll admit it i'm very good at kind of arranging and and knowing what songs where, where the song needs to go and where you know where a riff needs to come in but i'm not i'm not that good at kind of programming hi-hats and i'm not that good at um, putting the right ribbon microphone in front of the right amplifier but um but in my kind of comfort zone um mm. i i can get a really I think I'm very good because I've had the experience as a as an artist. I've got a I I think I'm quite good at being able to make people feel very comfortable and get and make them perform and feel that they're giving something, which for me is what music and records should be about. It's yeah. more important. It's the, you know, it's the it's the truth that comes out on a record rather than the production. Well, Crispin, it's been absolutely fantastic speaking to you. Um, I'll, I'll let you get on with the, your busy day and uh, hopefully um, when things die down again and everything, we'll be able to go out and see live music again in the flesh. Oh, God, I hope so. God, I'm, <laughs> I'm, so, I'm so missing it. Yeah, I mean, we, we, we need it, you know, gigs and festivals and stuff for so many people, myself included, are kind of like cathedrals you know you don't get that experience anywhere else no. and that's what i mean about about music you know when music's really loud and played at you for you and and um you know in that moment and it's never going to exist again it will at the moment that every hit drum beat just disappears the moment it's it's hit and yeah, yeah. and that's a, that's something that is you know it's truly like a sort of you know an hour long bubble that's burst in front of you so and and that i think people people need that and and, yeah. and i feel bereft of it in in the world at the moment thank you again so much for for speaking to me today it's been an absolute privilege and a pleasure okay and and you chris take care cheers bye-bye bye, -bye. bye. Uh, thanks again to crispin for joining me on the podcast it was an absolute pleasure to speak to him don't forget if you haven't already you can follow me on the usual social media platforms so just search for back to Britpop on instagram facebook and twitter and if you haven't already subscribe rate and if you've got time leave that review on itunes it really does help and if you want to support me financially i know i keep going on about this but it really does help you can support me by buying me a virtual coffee on my ko-fi page which the link is to in the show notes that really helps in terms of keeping this podcast going thanks again to everyone for listening see you again on the next episode Thank you.